All right. Well, we have a special guest here with us tonight. Um, is a, a dear friend and a mentor of mine. His name is Harold Shank. And Harold is my church planning coach. We talk a couple times a month about storyline. Harold's wife, Sally, is his church planning coach. And so you can be pretty sure that everything good that is you see at Storyline and joy about Storyline comes from the, the Shank family. You know, all the scheduling difficulties, and that's all Kaiser. Um, all the good stuff you see is by influence of Shank Incorporated. Um, I know Harold because we work together at a church in Memphis called Highland Street Church. I was his uh, preaching apprentice, and I've often said that I came into manhood in more ways than one in Memphis, uh, ministerially and and in leadership, and a lot of that had to do with Harold's mentoring in my life. And so I'm I'm deeply thankful to him and for his his influence in my in my life. Harold is uh, a man of God. He is he is a visionary leader. He's a gifted preacher, and he has a deep deep passion for social justice. Uh, because of his leader his leadership. Lots of uh, projects have come about, justice initiatives for the sake of justice and church planting for the sake of the poor because of his, his dreaming, because of his leadership. And I thought it would be very fitting for him to come and share with us tonight as we kick off a new series of conversations in our house churches called, uh, what is it called? Brought to Justice. Uh, that's what it's called. Uh, and we're, we're going to be exploring God's heart for social justice in the scriptures. So without further ado, Harold, if you'll come up, I'll say a prayer for you, and we'll let you give us a little introduction to justice and to the heart of God. God, we give you praise for how you're at work in this community and for the way that we have the privilege of joining with you and your mission in this world. God, I thank you for for Harold Shank and for his, his life and for his passions and for the way his heart reflects your heart. God, we pray for Sally. She's not feeling good tonight. We pray that you would, you would be at work in um, healing her and helping her to feel better. And God, we just pray that you would flow through Harold in his preaching and teaching and that you would have a word for us through Harold tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, open to Luke 4 with one finger, hold, hold, hold that spot, and uh, Deuteronomy 10. So if you could look at uh, those two spots, Luke 4, Deuteronomy 10. Uh, hello. It's good to see you. Uh, Ryan and Claudia and Charles and Julie and Sally and I were all in Memphis together, as uh, Charles uh, mentioned, and I was there first. And uh, they, they came and joined us, and it was uh, a remarkable to watch, uh, watch them work with uh, our congregation and to get involved, to jump in and uh, do quality work and uh, to endear themselves to people and to uh, just, uh, boy, they just have abundant talent. And so I'm really just delighted to, uh, uh, to know those folks. And in fact, a couple weeks ago, I was with a couple that uh, Ryan and Charles had both worked with and uh, they're doing great, and you can see the influence of uh, these four in their lives. We're getting some feedback. Are you working on that? No. Okay. That's not me. That's somebody else doing that, just so you know. Um, 
Coming down to be with you has brought back some memories because my wife and I and another couple in 1977 started an urban church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where uh, it never gets this hot. <laughs> and um, all the memories kind of came flooding back in of uh, carrying stuff in and setting up and, and all the things that you do uh, when church is new. But it also reminded me that on several occasions in the early days of our church, we would have, we would have an older minister come by to preach for us. And it just occurred to me that I'm now the older minister <laughs> coming by uh, to preach for you. But it was, uh, it was so encouraging uh, to have those guys come in and uh, share God's word with us and to encourage us. And I just hope in a little way that uh, I can measure up uh, to what those guys were doing. Um, you, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, you guys here uh, are very different from most churches, just like uh, the one we planted in Milwaukee, because in most churches, most communities of faith, the, the congregation goes out and finds a minister and says, will you come and minister with us? But Charles and Ryan have come, and they, they said, would you come and be a church with us. It's, it's kind of uh, working the other way like we did in Milwaukee. And uh, very much like what Paul did with the Philippians. Huh? You know, he started the church in Philippi. There wasn't a church there. He went and started it and said, would you come and join with me? And he called it partnership. Partnership. And so I, I commend that word to you that uh, you, know, you guys are all in partnership with each other. It's not just Charles and Julie and, 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 and uh, Ryan and Claudia. But it's all of you in partnership, working together in the gospel. So uh, God bless you and all that. Uh, we all worked together in Memphis. I, I was there about 20 years. And I pretty much started every day the same way. I would eat breakfast, and I'd read the local newspaper. And I remember one morning, 1996, it was May. I was reading the paper, got into the local news section somewhere back deep in that part of the paper, and there was a little bitty article, I don't know why it caught my attention, but I read it, and it said that yesterday the Memphis police had found the body of an unidentified woman floating on the Mississippi River. Well, the next day I was having breakfast, reading the next edition of the paper in the metro section about the same place, and there was a follow-up piece. And it said, it said, the woman whose body was found yesterday or the day before in the Mississippi River had been identified as Deborah Lois Wright. She was in her early 40s. She was mentally ill. And she was homeless. And not long after that, I heard that four days later, there was a funeral in an old shotgun house in the inner city of Memphis for Deborah Lois Wright. And it was an unusual funeral because there were only nine people there. Five of them were the social workers assigned to Deborah Lois Wright, two from the funeral home, and two inner city ministers. But the most striking thing about the funeral was there was only one spray of flowers, one bouquet. A woman had lived her life. She had lived into her 40s. 
She had been a daughter. She had been a sister. She had been a mother. She had been a wife. And then at her funeral, nine people, one bouquet of flowers. That story has haunted me because um, it makes me kind of want to give up, like we don't make much of a difference, like it's a pretty hopeless world out there. And as I've thought about that story over the years, it's raised questions in my mind. And I, I, I wonder, who was responsible for Deborah Lois Wright? Why did that happen? And in my more honest moments, I would wonder, was I somehow responsible for Deborah Lois Wright? We, after all, lived in the same town. And in some moments, I would wonder about my, the congregation I worked for. Was our church, which was only eight miles from where her body was found in the river, was it somehow involved in the life of Deborah Lois Wright? I wondered about God. Where was he? Did he care about Deborah Lois Wright? Did he have anything to do with that? Well, it sent me back to Scripture to look for some answers. And after plodding around, I ended up in Luke 4. And, and this is a story about the life of Jesus, and it's one of those programmatic texts. What I mean by that is that what Jesus says and does here becomes sort of the pattern for his life. This is sort of his mission statement. This is... This is where he says, this is what I'm going to do. And then he goes out and he does what he said he was going to do. And so it seems to me that if this is that kind of statement, and we're interested in being Christians, then this ought to be an important statement to us. Because if we're trying to follow Jesus, this is the starting line. And if we want to be like Jesus, the word Christian means Christ-like. We want to be Christ-like, like him, here's a pretty good picture of what he, what he looks like. If we want to be the body of Christ, here's a picture of the head. Well, in the first part of Luke 4, Jesus has gone down to the Judean desert where he's tempted by Satan. And as he's tempted, Jesus reaches back mostly to Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the, in the Bible that you also have marked with one finger. Uh, and he pulls out some principles there that allows him to defeat Satan. And then he begins this itinerant mission trip and ends up coming to his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And he walks in, and they hand him a scroll. They didn't have books then. That was four centuries later. But they hand him a scroll of a prophet named Isaiah. And Jesus opens the scroll to what we would call chapter 61, and he starts to read. Let me read what Luke says about Jesus reading that day. So this is Luke Chapter 4, I'm going to begin with verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And Jesus went to the synagogue, as his custom was, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus opened the book and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Having read that, he rolled the scroll up, 
And then he said, today, folks, this scripture has been fulfilled. So Jesus comes and he says, here's what I want to do. I want to preach good news to the poor. I want to help people who are in prison for political purposes, not because they're criminals, to get out of prison. I want to help people who are blind and deaf receive their health back. And I want to bring God's favor to these people. And, and Jesus makes that announcement. Now, what's interesting is, as Luke records Jesus' life, in the next six stories, in the next six stories, uh, Jesus does this very thing. So Jesus comes and says, I want to minister to the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost. And in the next six stories, Jesus ministers to the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost. He comes and says, I want to minister to the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost. Next six stories, he ministers to the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost. And he does it with excellence, with success. Now, no sooner has Jesus made this announcement in the synagogue, and there's resistance. The hometown people don't like it. And, 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 and Jesus says something about, well, a hometown boy, never, never, never very popular at home, incites the case of Elijah and Elisha. But then in those next six stories, as Jesus goes out and ministers to the vulnerable, the hurting, and the lost, in every one of those cases, he encounters resistance from religious insiders, but he continues to do it. Okay, fascinating story, but as I think about Deborah Lois writes, I'm not sure my questions get answered because I, I just have more questions. And I want to know, well, why did Jesus do this? Why did he decide that he was, his life was going to be about the vulnerable poor and the lost. And why did he decide to do that when he knew from the very beginning there was going to be resistance? And so I went there to get answers to my questions. I just get more questions. But then I started poking around this text, and he, he's quoting Isaiah 61. So I went back to Isaiah 61, Isaiah the prophet writing. He's writing to people in post-exilic Jerusalem. You don't need to know all the historical details. But it was a time of great poverty, very much like our day, when you had the elite and the very poor. And in chapter 58, there's this wonderful description of, of the people who were religious in that community. And they were going to church, or they were going to temple, or they were going to synagogue. And they were going down there to pray, and they were going down there to read scripture, and they were going down to sacrifice, and they were going down to do all the religious things. And Isaiah said, did you notice that as you walk down to the temple, did you notice as you go to church that you're walking by people who don't have houses to live in, don't have clothes to wear, and don't have food to eat? Don't you see the inconsistency of going to church and not taking care of these people? And so he announces in chapter 61, the servant is going to be anointed to preach good news to the poor and the release of the captives and recovery sight to the blind, the very words that Jesus quotes. Well, again, that's very helpful, but I have more questions. Why does Isaiah decide to reach out to the poor? Why does he decide to reach out to those people who are hurting? Where, where does he get that? Well, if you read Isaiah 61 very carefully, he's getting it from Deuteronomy. That's where it comes from. In Deuteronomy, uh, the people have been in slavery in Egypt. God, by his grace and mercy, lifts them out of slavery, gives them 
protection as they go through the wilderness. And they finally come to this edge, the border of the land that God's going to give to them. And God calls his servant to tell them how they're to live in the land, what, how they're to be in community in the land. And, and, that's, and that, what he tells them is the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he talks about, it, it talks about God's ideal community. This is the way people were meant to live together. If you want to know God's vision of any kind of community, whether it's Dallas or whether it's ancient Israel, it's in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, there's some principles in Deuteronomy that run the whole way through the scripture. One of the principles is this one. It's uh, the way we live in community affects our relationship with God. Sort of, a, to put it geometrically, our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationships. And if we don't have good horizontal relationships, it's very difficult to have a vertical relationship. And this, this is a principle that runs throughout Scripture. And finally, at the end of the New Testament, it's given classic expression when John writes in 1 John, he says, you cannot love the God that you can't see if you don't love the people you do see. And that principle in John comes from Deuteronomy. Another principle in Deuteronomy is that God evaluates the human community based upon how the people in the human community treat the weakest links. And so Deuteronomy is filled with, with directions about how to help the vulnerable. Chapter 10, for example. Chapter 14, he says, take up a tithe. What was the tithe for? Well, there are a number of things, but the tithe was to help those who were vulnerable, those who had fallen off the edge of society. Chapter 16 of Deuteronomy is about the feast days. Get together and have parties. He says, you make sure when you get together, you say feast to the widows, the orphans, and the vulnerable in the community. Chapter 24, when you get into the land, set up courts because you're going to have conflict with one another. But make sure when you have courts that you treat the people who are vulnerable and poor fairly. Because God is evaluating the community based upon how we treat the weakest members. A chain is no stronger than its weakest link. So you can read through Deuteronomy and find a lot of the bases of Isaiah and of Jesus. But where does Moses get it from? Deuteronomy 10. Now you can open to Deuteronomy. I think you're going to love this verse. I think. Uh, I think this is going to be Ryan's favorite verse in the book of Deuteronomy. This, this is Deuteronomy 10. And, and this is the verse that the rest of the Bible quotes. And this is the verse that our songs, our songwriters these days are quoting from. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God. Don't you love those lines? Our God that we've been worshiping is the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's the great. He's the mighty. He's the terrible God. And that's quoted throughout Scripture as a wonderful description of God. And our song leaders put it to music. And we have a lot of songs that include those words. Okay, listen to it. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So the reality is, where did Jesus get his concern for the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost? Where did Isaiah get his concern for the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost? 
Where do all the laws of Deuteronomy about the poor, the vulnerable, and the lost come from? They come from the heart of God. The God of God, the God of God's Lord of Lords, is a God who's concerned about the vulnerable and the poor. Now, it's interesting as you read the Old Testament that everybody in the Old Testament's evaluated in light of Deuteronomy. So if you read Joshua, if you know, know the Old Testament, Joshua's he's a good guy. Why is Joshua a good guy? Because he builds the kind of community in Palestine that is described in Deuteronomy. People in Judges are the bad guys. Why are they the bad guys? They don't build the kind of community that Deuteronomy describes. And then all the kings come along. You've read Kings and Samuel. The kings are all either called good or bad. Eight are called good. The rest are called bad. Why are they called good and bad? Well, they're called good or bad based upon how well they lived up to the standards of Deuteronomy. And then the prophets come along. Isaiah chapter 1 in the 8th century B.C. He comes into Jerusalem and says, Hey, you people, God is not happy with the way you're living. And they say, Isaiah, why is God not happy with the way you're living, the way we're living? Isaiah says, you're not taking care of the vulnerable. You're not taking care of the poor. Read Isaiah chapter 1 in the, in the oh, 8th century. In the 7th century, Jeremiah comes along. Jeremiah chapter 7. He tells the people in Jerusalem, you're not living the way God wants you to live. God's not happy with you. Well, Jeremiah, why is God not happy with us? And Jeremiah says, you're not taking care of the poor. You're not taking care of the vulnerable. 6th century B.C., Ezekiel is writing to people in Jerusalem. And he says, God's not happy with you people in Jerusalem. Oh, Ezekiel, why is God not happy? It's because you're not taking care of the poor and the vulnerable in your community. 5th century B.C., Zechariah chapter 7 People have a worship war going on. Zechariah says the worship war doesn't matter. What matters is how you take care of the poor and the needy in your community. And then Jesus comes along a few centuries later. He decides his program for ministry is going to be to take care of the vulnerable, the poor, and the lost. And then we have stories like Mark chapter 10, the most, one of the most famous stories about Jesus. Jesus is, is preaching one day, and, and someone, they're trying to bring children to Jesus. And, and, the, and the disciples are like, like the secret service agents around Jesus trying to keep the little terrorists away from Christ. And, and, and Jesus gets angry. He says, no, no, you let them come to me. Well, why is he so upset? You can't love the God that you can't see if you don't love the ones you can see. Don't you know God evaluates the human community based upon how you treat the weakest members? You read in Acts in the early church, they were concerned that there not be a needy person among them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, long section about giving. It's not giving to the church budget. It's giving to the poor in Judea who were struggling. And then we come down to the end of the New Testament, we have James. And James at the end of chapter 1 says, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father. Anybody interested in that? Are you interested in pure religion? Undefiled before God the Father? Does that have any, any appeal? I think so. Well, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit the widows and the orphans. I've always wondered about that because there's nothing else in the New Testament about, uh, about orphans, not very much about widows, and there's nothing else about, about those in James. And I, I kind of wonder where he gets that. And so in my... My, my, in the future, sometime when I get to meet James, <laughs> I want to ask James, James, why'd you say that? Why'd you say pure religion undefiled before God the Father is a visit to widows and orphans? Why'd you say that? I think James is going to say, I was doing Bible study 
I read what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I read what Jesus did in the Gospels. And I read about Zechariah in the 5th century, who was quoting Ezekiel in the 6th century, who was quoting Jeremiah from the 7th century, who was quoting Isaiah from the 8th century, who was quoting Moses from the 10th century or the 12th century, who was quoting the heart of God. Well, the core of social justice goes back to the heart of God. But how do we get from God to downtown Dallas? I mean, how, how does it look? When I was in Memphis, I was friends with a woman named Sharon Singleton. And Sharon gave me permission to tell you her story. She moved to Memphis with the hopes of a better life, but it didn't work out that way. She couldn't get a job. And she ended up doing prostitution, got involved in drugs, alcohol, had a series of children, each one a different husband. She was in and out of prison. And then she gave birth to April, her last child. And just after she gave birth to April, uh, she was arrested, taken to trial for prostitution, and sent to prison. And they took April away from her. And Sharon never knew what they did with April. They just took her away. She asked, but, you know, they don't answer letters from women in prison. And so in prison, Sharon, not in prison for the first time, she, she kind of came to herself. And she said, I've got to do something. I've got to find God. And so she started praying that God would somehow make a connection with her. And she, one day, she's in the prison library, and, and uh, there was a trash can. She looked in the trash can, and it was a postcard that said, Bible study. And she pulled out the postcard and it was covered with, I won't tell you what it was covered with. But she cleaned it off. And it was a, a Bible correspondence course from a church in Memphis. And she sent it to the church and started studying the Bible in prison by mail. And when she got out, people said, uh, she became a Christian, was baptized in Christ. And they said, when you, when you get out, you need to look up the Life Skills Lab. Ryan used to work at the Life Skills Lab. My wife used to work there. And Claudia, did you work there? No. Well, it was a full-time program for people who had been in and out of prison, for people who had been chronically unemployed, people who had been homeless. A time to help them get their lives together and to, to, to learn the basic skills of how to survive in life and how to get on in life, not, not training for a particular job, but just learning basic skills. And Sharon just didn't have those. And she went through the life skills lab, made friends, and learned skills. And she got out, graduated from the life skills lab, got a job, got an apartment, supporting herself, started a Bible study on Tuesday night at her apartment. Sharon was doing well. Got April back. Started going to church. Well, about a year later, at the Life Skills Lab, a another woman showed up named Claudia. Not, not this Claudia, another Claudia. And, and the people who ran the Life Skills Lab noticed that Claudia's story was almost the same as Sharon's. They moved to Memphis for a better life, prostitution, alcohol, drug addiction, prison, number of children. And they thought, maybe Sharon will be Claudia's uh, a counselor, her, her, her friend. And so they called Sharon up and said, 
would you be willing to be sort of a partner to, to Claudia? She goes through the life skills lab, and that's what Ryan, my wife, did. And, and Sharon was, oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just sort of getting my life together. And she said, okay, I'll come down and meet this woman. And so Sharon had graduated from life skills lab. She's now out, has a job going to church. She comes out, and, and, she, and they introduce her to Claudia. And these two women sort of square off of each other. And everyone's kind of, what's going on here? And they're sort of circling around. And then suddenly, they ran to each other, embraced, and started bawling. And they cried for 20 minutes. Finally, the women got themselves sort of recomposed. And everybody's standing around saying, we don't know what's going on. And I said, what's, what's going on? And Sharon said, we were cellmates in prison. Sharon invited Claudia to her Bible study on Tuesday night. Pretty soon, Claudia became a Christian. Claudia graduated from the Life Skills Lab. And then we decided to start a Life Skills Lab in the prison, and we hired Claudia to be the teacher. And then along came a woman named Linda, and her story was the same as Sharon's and Claudia's. And she, too, went to the Life Skills Lab, became a Christian. And I remember when I was preaching in Memphis, when Charles and I were preaching there, uh, Claudia, Sharon, Linda would sit right over here on the left every Sunday. Well, there's one Sunday in particular, uh, and this happened in the ladies' restroom right before church, and I wasn't there, just so you know. But uh, Sharon and April, April's now about eight or nine, are in the women's restroom right before service was to begin, and and, 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 and Sharon was t telling April, hurry up. You know, she was kind of going a little slow. And she's trying to, come, April, hurry up. Church is starting. April, hurry up. And a voice from another part of the bathroom <laughs> said, I was April's foster mother. And it turns out, Mary, who was her foster mother, and Trace had taken April into their home when, when Sharon had gone to prison and had raised her for two or three years while she was incarcerated. And, and Trace and Mary had, had April and Sharon over the house and showed, showed, showed them April's bedroom when she was a three, four, and five-year-old and, and showed them the scrapbook. Three or four years of, of April's life suddenly came back. And then, and then Sharon realized that April was going to the same church as a child that she was now going to. Well, it goes back to the heart of God. He, he's, he cares about the vulnerable. He cares about the orphan, about the widow, about the, the people who are oppressed, the people on the edge. It's in his heart. And everywhere you look in Scripture, you find evidence of it. It was, it was 10 years ago, maybe yesterday, that this happened. Excuse me, 20 years ago, yesterday, that this happened. A few months before, a group of people in our congregation who were all public school teachers had been talking about the fact that school was about to start and they knew they were going to have all these children coming to school who didn't have school supplies. And they said, couldn't we do something about that? And so people got together and we decided to have a school store. We asked our members to go buy school supplies and we went to two schools in the neighborhood around the church building and said, just tell your students to come on a Saturday in August 20 years ago yesterday, 
and we'll give them free school supplies. And so we gathered all the supplies together, put them in a room kind of like this, and uh, put up signs. And I was, I was a nervous wreck because I thought, why is everybody going to come? You know, we, I mean, how, how are people going to know? And I thought, we're going to do all this work, and, and two kids are going to come. No one else is going to come. So I was, re I was really concerned about it. And, I, and I'll never forget that. Saturday morning, we're supposed to be there at 8, and we got up early uh, to get there uh, at 8, and we're coming down the street, driving from our house down to the church building, and uh, came down the street, and, and I, saw, I saw people lined up at the front door of the church building, out to the sidewalk, down past the grass, past the parking lot that would hold about 300 cars, past the three mansions, and around the corner. It's the only time I've ever seen people lined up to get into a church across. And there were about 1,500 children came through that day at the school store. And yesterday, I think, they had it again. They've served over 100,000 children in the school store. In 1992, we had the school store, and a grandmother came through with her grandkids. And afterwards, she wrote us a note. And she said, I've been to lots of giveaway programs because I live in the projects, government projects. And I've been places where they give you stuff, but she said, I've never been treated with as much dignity and respect as I was at your school store. And she said, in the project where I live, and I, I'm, she, I'm, she said, I'm the president of the Residents Association. I have you know, the keys to the federally owned uh, community center there. She said, uh, we, we have children who've never heard the word Jesus except as a swear word. They don't go to church. There are no churches to go to. She said, would you come and teach them about Jesus. And so a couple weeks later, we started a Bible class in a federally owned building. And children started coming, and adults started coming. People started being converted to Christ and following him. And then one day, some of the adults said, why can't we be a church? And so the downtown Church of Christ was born. And four years later, a body was found floating in the Mississippi River. And four days after that, there was a funeral. And there were nine people there. And two of the ministers were the ministers of the downtown Church of Christ. And the bouquet of flowers had a card. And the card said, to our dear sister in Christ, Deborah Lois Wright from your brothers and sisters at the downtown church. God doesn't always do things the way we would do. And I don't know all the answers to all the questions about that story. But it goes back to God's heart. And that's where justice originates. God bless you all and what you're doing. And uh, may we continue to give him glory. Thank you.